Americans know so much about her. Maybe not facts, but stories. They know her shoe size and her address and where she shops. But they also know how much remains private still. And it feels like with just one more story, one more picture, one more magazine profile, they might figure it all out. Who she is, why she matters, why they care. Welcome to Lady Fiction, a podcast hosted at America Zentrum Hamburg in the Transatlanticist series. Today, I'm happy to welcome you on an episode on Finding Jackie, A Life Reinvented, a biography that came out earlier this year with Diversion Books. I'm very happy to host Oline Eaton today, and I'd like to puzzle around with her a little bit about something that I like to call the First Lady Mystique in U.S. American culture. It's been on my mind uh, and a main topic in my scholarship for some time, so this week I piped up when Michelle Obama extended her heartfelt birthday wishes to Dr. Jill Biden. She wrote, on Twitter, that is, Happy birthday, Jill. We're so lucky to have such a kind and thoughtful flotus like you leading the way. So kindness, thoughtfulness, and leadership, those are the values apparently important for Michelle Obama, who has some authority on the job, I would say. But I'm also still reveling over the definition of Flotus pillow power by one of the first Flotus scholars, historians David P. Watson, about 20 years ago. He wrote, Flotus can be an activist political partner, but also, quote, an ornamental part of the presidency. In another publication, he wrote, Flotus can be, quote, a barometer for the status of women in society and its shifting views of womanhood, if there's ever something abstract, that's probably it. But her duties <laughs> are, and that's another quote, first and foremost, wife and mother, public figure and celebrity, and third, symbol of the American woman. So the First Lady Mystique is something that's, you know, been around for a while. And today I'm super excited to be discussing what I would like to call a special case and maybe also a trailblazer in her own right, um, Jackie Kennedy. And with me to um, discuss this is an expert on the topic, Oline Eaton, who has published a biography earlier this year that's called Finding Jackie. I'm super excited to read it and I recommend it. First up, I want to recommend it to all our listeners. Oline uh, teaches first-year college writing as a non-tenure-track full-time lecturer at Howard University. Her academic research focuses on celebrity, emotion, trauma, biographical writing, and gossip. I'm very happy that she has agreed to be the author and guest today on Lady Fiction. So welcome, Oline. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight. Thank you for reading out a part from, I think it's a midway through the book or maybe two thirds yep. through the book uh, about why Americans need just another story. Maybe that's a good conversation starter about this. What is so special about finding Jackie and why is it always that other story that yet it seems never, you know, takes us to the essence of who she was? I think what I was doing, I wrote this partly for my PhD and I got really obsessed with the, with some psychoanalytic thought about how there are zones of obscurity even to ourselves where we don't know ourselves. And I think that's really informed my sense of the way we consume celebrity and stuff is that we want to pin people down. We try to do this with the people in our lives as well. And I think biography sort of replicates a lot of dynamics and lived experience. We want to be able to put labels on people and know everything about them. And celebrities kind of provide a way of playing with that. And I don't like, we would be so insulted if someone suggested one book could tell everything there is to know about us. Like that would just be so, I would be so offended. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and there's so many Jackie biographies. And I think there, there's so many famous women in particular for whom there are a lot of biographies. And I think that's all an attempt to sometimes try to prove who the person was, but collectively they provide sort of point to the multi-dimensionality of everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of what I was trying to do here with all the gossip and all the stories is that by looking at the different facets of the story as it was told, 
we may not arrive at the truth, but that through that presentation, the representation of her life in that way, there would be some truths to emerge either. I don't want to put limits on it, but about celebrity and about American womanhood and about 20th century history in the U.S. in particular. Yes, thank you. Uh, and it's it makes a lot of sense to approach specifically Jackie in this way, mm -hmm. because on the one hand, I mean, when I started looking into First Lady Studies, I got interested. Um, it was when I was I was uh, in Washington, D.C., and I was mesmerized by Michelle Obama. But then everybody was saying how Michelle is a new Jackie. But she's not only style, she's also substance because she was a working mom and she performed a different first ladyship. And uh, even though I, I didn't know a lot about Jackie, I, I immediately under, thought I understood what they were talking about uh, when they said, it's the style, it's that je ne sais quoi, it's that magic, that Jackie magic. And um, her first ladyship was so short-lived And then there's this long you know, period of her life that comes after in which she still remained a celebrity, which you also write about. And um, I felt I, I knew her, but didn't really. And that's how I came to reading your book, which I got so fascinated with. And um, I was also interested in asking you right off. I'm fangirling a little bit here for your book, <laughs> I have to say. But I, I, I wanted to write. Uh, I wanted to ask you right off uh, about structure and um, hmm. how did you build the story? So, so you you have a chronological structure. You have a before and afterwards. And the, our listeners will hear me opening the book here. There's this real pages that I'm flipping here. So before, after, and the afterlife. Can we talk about this a little bit? Um, yeah. Why did you mm -hmm. call it that? How did that work? I, as I, as I mentioned in the preface, I'm not. I've obviously written this book, and I'm, but I'm not like a huge character in it. Um, but I do talk about in the preface how what interested me originally as a 12 year old girl. Uh, was seeing how when she died, parts of the story went away and were just seemed to be actively erased. And the, the post first lady years, I guess, were what to me, specifically the widowhood and rem the remarriage to Onassis, they were just completely erased. I think Wayne Kostenbaum said they were erased hmm. like Soviets banishing dissidents from the historical record. It was hmm. very Kennedy related, very sort of stereotypical first lady qualities of dignity, grace, class style, silence. And she just seems so much more interesting than that. And so that was kind of, that was why I picked that piece of the story. I don't even, I mean, I was so young. I think it just chose me. It's hard to tell what agency mm. I had mm. here. But when I was going to, when I started writing about it first during my MA, I always picked the reaction to the remarriage, although the buffet of headlines and stuff about that, that was always the point that interested me the most. So when I, 10 years later, did, did decide to do this for my PhD, that was the part. It was never going to be about the assassination or first ladyhood. It was always the emphasis was on the aftermath part of it. And I now, having had a lot of therapy, recognize that how that was working in my own life and was helping me process stuff and that, that she was I've experienced um, complex PTSD and obviously she has suffered PTSD as well. And so I think I was, I've always said I like medicated with biography and I think I, as a girl and as a young woman definitely did that with her. But when I was doing my PhD, it felt like it needed to be, there came a point, I didn't really know how the structure would go. And I, I research as I write. And so I was literally reading newspapers day by day. And just like, so it wound up that I just kind of started writing like that, and thinking of them as episodes instead of chapters. And then eventually, I read um, Hilary Mantel's A Place of Greater Safety, which uh -huh. is ruthlessly chronological, and will be hmm. like, August 4th, 3 p.m. Uh, and I really leaned into that for some reason. I And I mean, it, it was annoying in this draft. My supervisors were like, what have you done with your life? Because um, it was just so many dates and so many times yeah. and it was just annoying. So knowing that if you go back and look at it, there are places where it becomes very time conscious. Hmm. Um, but that's kind of where the organization into years rather than chapters and that came from. Yeah. And then... I think the the before and the after and the aftermath kind of just became another way of distinguishing. I didn't want the years to be seen as chapters, mm -hmm. even though even though if we're speaking traditionally, they are obviously. 
I wanted to kind of situate it in time in that way. And I kind of liked the idea of the fairy tale language there of before and after and aftermath. Yes. Um, and it seemed like a gentler division of time rather than like Mrs. Kennedy, the widowhood, Mrs. Onassis, yeah. Jackie yeah. finds herself. I feel like that's yeah. often the way it's constructed as though she were five different people. And this was a way of, of sort of making those iterations within a life slightly gentler while still obviously structuring it around the assassination overall. I don't think I deliberately set out to write trauma-informed biography. I think that's what I wound up doing. And I think mm. that structure there was probably is a big way that that manifested without my really realizing it. Mm. What I find so intriguing is that, I mean, obviously it's the the most iconic image I think most people are going to have in their minds. You know, the, the pink is, I think it's Chanel, right? It was a knockoff of Chanel. Okay, it was a knock. Okay, so the pink Chanel knockoff that she wore with um, brain tissue still um, spattered across it. So that so that's that's the starting point, or that's maybe the most obvious reference that people will have with her. And um, by going along in the structure, you start with November twenty second. That's the assassination, and then you go to part one before, part two after, and then part three is the afterlife. I think that's really nicely crafted because it, it asks us to it, it tells us there's a story and you know there's a before after afterlife so it's a trauma-informed approach that you talk about but at the same time it asks us to you know consider what we would think where where the before and the after and the afterlife start you know because you don't give the years you don't tell us mm -hmm. you know the marriage mean, means the remarriage means the beginning of the after It gives us a structure, but at the same time, it invites us to, con you know, consider what what do we put where, what do, what are our expectations, and specifically because of this first lady mystique thing that I've you know, I've been grappling with this for for a while now in my American studies research, the first lady mystique doesn't give so much agency um, to the people who fill the position, um, puts them on a pedestal, but then they, when they do something, all of a sudden they become like leaders or, you know, thoughtful um, and stuff like that. Um, or when they don't, then they're also critiqued for it. So it's like, uh, you know, this agency objecthood thing that goes back and forth is, is, is huge. And, um, Jackie is both the impersonation of this and then the antidote, <laughs> yeah. weirdly enough, I feel, um, because specifically of everything that, so obviously I didn't know everything that I read in your mm -hmm. biography, so I thought it's so intriguing, the events leading up to the remarriage, and that's the remarriage is the time when she drops out of being first lady, like literally drops out not only her term has ended but she has another guy and she only became mm -hmm. first lady because she had the other husband before mm -hmm. so that's the that's the 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 break event um yeah. and um i really enjoyed reading everything after and the the trauma inflicted on her uh in that time as well um maybe we can talk a little bit about this close after so directly up to um the remarriage and um what you know she how she went through the transformations a little bit so veer away from how do you write the story as in mm -hmm. to more towards what actually happened what would you say what kind of period was this in her iconic biographical story yeah i think It's critically important, and it's the part that often there have been a few books that have focused on this time a little bit, but it's often in women biography of women is so often just like a domestic drama. Even huh. sometimes they sometimes they get to have careers like Elizabeth Taylor if it's an actor they had a career, but their life was not situated in history, and you know wars went on and and that never pops up. And I think her story and. I would argue most people's stories. I think this, this felt very cutting edge when I was doing this in 2015 and 16. I think now we have hopefully a little bit of a better sense of how historical events intrude on 
and affect you personally, intrude in your life mm-hmm. and can be traumatic as well. And so that was one of the things that I was quite keen to sort of situate it historically, because I think that is fundamental to what happened to and why her story was so important, why it was covered so obsessively, and why why she mattered to people. Uh, so there was this quote in Sarah Bradford's America, America's Queen, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin had said, it would be really interesting to try to figure out what happened there. Uh, and mm. I felt that that was a question like nobody had pursued that I was like, well, wow. what did happen, we can't definitively say, but surely we can do more research and actually try to. And so looking at it, I was kind of inspired by Rick Perlstein's Nixon land and that, and, and also William Manchester's death of a president, which both are focused on either specific people or specific events, but then have this sort of panoramic view and show how it's, um, those stories are rooted in a broader culture. So my theory was, if you read about her, you knew what was going on in the world too. It's mm, not like, mm. like we all can know like multiple things. We can know what Kim Kardashian's doing. We can know that there's Taylor Swift concerts in the U S right now. We can know that the U S government almost went off a financial cliff. Uh, we can be concerned about the CNN town halls and focusing on the war in Ukraine and what's happening in Palestine. Like we can know all of these things at one time. And still know a lot about some really frivolous stuff, too. That doesn't mean that the frivolous stuff has no value. And I think it's that combination of, I should have put frivolous in quotes, but that combination of like information about entertainment and other people's lives and stuff and what we would quote unquote call hard news. Those things all coexist and they shape each other. And that was something like I would feel I was writing about something about like I wrote a whole paper on Jackie and nuclear fear and American death. And I was like, this is a stretch. Like this is just I am way out here making things up. And then I would see like I Anita Lou. So. I wasn't. I wasn't because I was astounded when I looked at the papers. Like her stories yeah. were always next to uh, things about the bomb. Anita Lou's specifically said that she was a great distraction from the bomb. So if we think about Susan Sontag's imagination of disaster, that is what these stories are doing. And it felt like if you're going to tell the story of her life, it had to involve the stories that were around that life that she also would have been aware of and that readers of her life would have been aware of. Mm. And um, the, that all results in the stories that she about herself that she had to live with and to which she was responding. So the story, all of that's in like this big sludge, this cultural sludge and to leave it out as is traditionally done in sort of celebrity biographies, women's biographies that just seemed really dangerous, honestly Mm -hmm. to me. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been, it's been the norm for decades, but yes, I think one of the most interesting things about Jackie is that, that, as you said, that she's known for style and the substance parts kind of gets, gets thrown under the rug. And she really, I think, still has not gotten her due as a scholar, as someone who was very, very, very learned about decorative arts and about historical preservation. She sort of launched, not launched, I don't want to give her too much credit, but she was a very, very huge advocate of historical preservation in this country. And I think so many of the cities in the U.S. would not look as they do had she not been interested in that and been involved and sort of spearheaded that. Um, and also she was very, very curious about the world around her and traveled a lot, studied different cultures, spoke different languages and things. And it's, I don't know why that doesn't get more attention. Cause that was actually a really important part of the ambassador ambassadorial role that she played for the U S while first lady and after as well. Um, mm. in her travels, she was obviously raising a lot of goodwill for the country. Hmm. When you say you looked at the at the news coverage and uh, her story was often next to, let's say, uh, you know, nuclear fear and fear of the bomb and stuff like this, that's a kind of a, you know, imagining ourselves back into what people would read about and what they would be confronted. So it's this media media history approach. But I, and earlier you said uh, women's stories are often domestic dramas. Um, it almost seems that's a bit of a, you know far-fetched maybe um Mm -hmm. but do you think um her story was spun out as a a kind of soothing instrument um and then you know she she worked well as a kind of soothing home story um subject next to let's say nuclear fear or the terrors Mm -hmm. of the age or that disorientation that started with the jfk assassination that went on in the 70s 60s and 70s it was it was crazy so it seems to me she's like 
the safe bet and the thing that also you know having a Jackie story would make fe people relate and say oh it's the domestic drama again then mm -hmm. the other stuff isn't it doesn't feel yeah. so bad a couple of things I think first of all it's really difficult to over exaggerate how much coverage she received like it is i just don't i don't think there's a modern equivalent even with the internet like the way hmm. that she was because i was looking at regional papers i was looking at national papers and inter international papers as well i was also looking at tabloid magazines and just the level of coverage is Gen I've tried, I've tried in this book to capture the chatter and the polyphony, but it's really like almost reliably every mm. day there was something. It was a cartoon. It was her name being mentioned in an advertisement for diamonds. It was, it was something. It was, it would be like in the little classified ads, someone would be like, you may not be Onassis, but you can buy our house. So it was just at the everyday level, she was everywhere and there would be pictures and stuff like that too. And I think that could function in terms of escapism. It could function to create this invisible community and, and this, this quite important para, parasocial relationship, however casually you engaged with it, even if you just read the, the headlines of the newsstand. As we all do now when we're scrolling through our phones, we just read the headline, we don't read the article. And you then tell everyone you know what's going on. So there's that. But I think that the movie magazines, which are they're the covers of those throughout the book, I think those were doing something equally complex but slightly different. And so they're written, they're all sorts of different magazines. There's all sorts of different writers. It's difficult to pin down who was writing what, when. But I think often those were, they were very long articles, like weirdly long articles. And not like New Yorker level, but almost. And they would dig more deeply into like the emotional complexities of situations. So after JFK died, the newspapers, Life Magazine, McCall's, everyone was like, Jackie's really got it together. She's moving on. She pulled together this amazing funeral. The movie magazines would have a 10 page article, like Caroline Kennedy says, my mommy cries all the time. And it would delve really deeply in like very melodramatically, but very deeply into what it would what it might have been like. So this is where the fiction element comes in what it might have been like to be Jackie. So it's like a first person narrative of mm. Jackie's experience as a widow. And she's worried about her kids. She's worried about how she's going to have money to survive. And sometimes they were first person, sometimes they weren't. But it was that like, in biography, we look down on mind reading, but it was that type of stuff and pure fan fiction, basically. Um, but that would serve a different purpose because we're talking about young widowhood, which is not yeah. very well represented in popular culture. Widowhood generally is not very and well represented. technically, I mean, she's still reproductive age as well, which yeah. is yeah. rare so she for does, a celebrity. She needs to, yeah, no. she needs to get a dad for her kids. Mm -hmm. She needs to have a further family. She needs to find the right man. Mm -hmm. Um so there's all that stuff. And I think those, which are sort of precursors to Us Weekly and um, People Magazine later on, but the reporting level is more, they're more cooperative with celebrities, as certainly People is. Um, and the reporting level is, I mean, there is reporting, basically. <laughs> this is like, we have a set of pictures, let's make up a story about it. Mm -hmm. um, though sometimes, I mean, it's it actually doesn't hew that far away from what seems to have been the reality that one would expect. But I think those publications, so all of these are operating in tandem. So even if you're just reading the New York Times and see a piece on Jackie on page 45, you'll see 30 of these magazines at the newsstand with her picture every month and read headlines and see what's going on there. And so I think all of that together gives us hints at how, like the different ways that her image, her story were functioning in American culture at the time. It was functioning all over the world as well and related in different ways too, for sure. Um, but I've obviously focused on the American context here. So a scene that you cite uh, in the afterlife, after, after assassination, but also after remarriage, um, particularly struck me about this um, function of Jackie and this over exposure or over coverage that she's experiencing in the uh, in the tabloids but also in um, the mainstream media and in the newspapers at this time and that's the the scene where she's you start out talking about how she's in Villefranche-sur-Mer in Capri in Sicily and um, she wears a, a revealing um, 
Is it a shirt? Um, it's like a very that? lightweight sweater, I think. A, a I think tight like a... red sweater, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then I'm pretty the sure Italians it was purple. Wonder... <laughs> what is that? I said, I'm pretty sure it was purple and they misidentified the color in the press. Ah, see? Mm-hmm. see? They got that wrong. So, I was, But you have these wonderful quotes and I, I just love how the, the narrative flows from there. So the Italians wonder, quote, if Jackie Onassis showed up without a bra. And then um, the photo goes out across the wires with an obscenity warning that suggests editors, please note nature of Mrs. Onassis's costume. Um, and then um, somebody um, from... Uh, Another publication wonders, is Mrs. Onassis one of those bra burners? And from there, you know, you delve in this beautiful reflection on, is she a feminist or not? And I just love that part. Maybe we can just retrace the steps. So we see the woman in a shirt that's revealing. Everybody goes bonkers over it. And then they wonder if she's a bra burner. And you say no. Can you, can you tell us why? Well, I mean, the story of bra burning in and of itself is not historically accurate. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. We'd have to go look at my notes, uh, the notes section that's on my website at olineeden.com. Um, because I think that I had found, I think I found the initial reaction in a newspaper. And I can't remember if the thing about the warning to the editors, if I actually found that in an archive or if that was also mentioned in a newspaper, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the bra burners thing comes from Parade Magazine, which was a supplement in newspapers on Sundays. Uh, so there were several different points that brought that together. Yeah, that was kind of my, I found it, one of the weird things about writing this was I wanted to be ruthlessly chronological, but I also, obviously there needs to be some reflection on things. And um, that was a question, was like, how feminist was she? And which, I mean, it's really tricky to explain someone Mm. else's relationship to the movements of their times. And I think all of us are not doing as nearly as much as we should in our own lifetimes. And it's totally fine to judge the people of the past for what they did and did not do. But I think that it is interesting to think about the disconnect between someone's life being their story being used to like help, open doors for other people and possibilities and stuff. I feel like that whether or not she was a feminist that her life absolutely operated that way for me. I'm sure it operated for a lot of other people who read about her or were alive when she was. And so what I was trying to do in that passage was kind of point out the things she had done while also holding her accountable that like Gloria Steinem was really pissed that Mm. she didn't do more and was like, Mm -hmm. why, why won't she do more? And, And had that reflection of like that actually maybe wanting her to do more is a way of using her as well. So maybe that's mm-hmm. the, even the desire to have her do more than she wants to do is kind of denying her agency. But yeah, I thought it was it was an interesting thing to write and to kind of struggle with myself because certainly now uh, I grew up in the age of I'm not a feminist, but and then you espouse all the feminist things you believe in. You clearly are a feminist, but like, yeah. And I don't, I don't even think I deal, I I define feminist in that section, Mm -hmm. Um, but just kind of leaving that open for uh, readers to kind of engage with. And I did throughout this whole book, try to leave certain breadcrumbs of things that I don't delve into so that people, I'm, I never have thought I'm the last biographer. I feel like I'm John the Baptist. Thousands hordes will come after me and that's great. Um, But to try to leave little nuggets that they can follow up on and pursue more. Yeah, that was the nugget for me. <laughs> Good, um, go for it. <laughs> um, because you do write, you know, the bra burners are all man haters at this point. So that would be, you know, second second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, then towards the end of the section, this is page um, uh, 194 through 197. Uh, you also say that there's lots of letters to the editor um, um, writing women about, you know, should she have another baby? Mm-hmm. Uh, she's 42 at this point. Should she have another child with the, the second husband? Mm-hmm. And uh, they wonder about this. And you connect this to the bra burning earlier. This is what I found is such an intriguing thought trajectory. And at the end, you say this is just one example. There are many. What these commentators are doing here, quote, is using Jackie to ask about choice. Mm-hmm. 
it was a that was a wonderful, powerful moment that illustrates what you were talking about before, namely that she's often used, you know, as a magnifying glass. Mm -hmm. Like her story is like, what would she think? How does she feel now that she's mm -hmm. a single mom? She's remarrying. She's living the life. And I mean, she is also living the life. It's Capri, yeah, yeah. it's Villefrance. It's like she's all over the place and it's mm -hmm. luxury by our standards, maybe, but also by mm -hmm. her standards at her time. So, um, yeah. and, you know, good for her. I would think, um, but um, it's intriguing. I mean, I do, that I do think there's a component to the travel that is there's something earlier in like 65 or 66 where she's just she says tells someone you're just trying to get away from your miser the miserable self mm. you've been all your life. So mm. there is a certain element of yes, it's super glamorous and it's wonderful, but there does seem to be like they're constantly on the go. And I think towards the end of the book, when she spends more time in New York, she gets a house in New Jersey. That's kind of like things are getting better. And so, uh, yeah, so I do look some of it because I think toward the end when, when Onassis is sick and I was writing it, I was like, oh, they're just doing the same thing over and over again. Like this is going to be so boring for the reader because it's just like here and here and here and here. Mm. Um, and I was like, oh, that actually is the rhythm. They are doing these things. This is the rhythm of their life is it's getting very repetitive. They're just kind of circling the globe, going to these different places because they have nowhere because they are trying to escape to some degree. And certainly during her widowhood, it seems to have been that she used travel kind of as a way of not having to deal with being at home and being alone at home and the quiet in her apartment and stuff like that. And what would the home be? I mean, that's another first lady thing question. Yeah. Earlier on, you say, you know, that's the only home that my kids knew and I'm reluctant to go back to the White House. Yeah. And she talks about her kids, but I think there's a linkage to her own experience maybe as well, maybe also a mm -hmm. projection into this is my, the White House is my home, yeah. but it, this episode was so brief. Um, I think so too. Yeah. That there was someone who had said that her, uh, her marriage was like a series of one night stands because they moved so much. Hmm. And like the White House was a protracted period of time where they were together in a place where they didn't have bad memories. It was a new place and they were there together and she got to see a lot more of him because he would come in for lunch and dinner and stuff. And so it was kind of a place where they were grounded more than they had been earlier in their marriage. And then when she got out, they'd already sold their home. So she had to, she stayed at Avril Harriman's house for a while, for like a couple months, and then bought herself a house that is <laughs> currently, I think, I don't know if it's sold. It was currently on sale for like $20 million oh, wow. uh, in DC. Okay. Everyone in my life has sent me the link to that article. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so to our listeners, if you have 20 million to spare, you can buy the house and we would love to visit, you know? We would absolutely love to visit. Please, someone get it. My my real estate agent tried to get me in and he couldn't. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but, but the ho the home thing is, is interesting because with all the travel, she also becomes such a European figure or mm -hmm. you also write about the conjunction, you know, she widely became to be believed as a figure of European hedonism and lacks morals, you know, all the travel is, is you can see the eyebrows going up. Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that she's really off the grid. I mean, come on, is somebody else in the white house. There's another first lady. Um, yeah. And she has remarried, but mm. all people still seem to be at this point, you know, feel the calling to judge her. And mm -hmm. uh, they say, oh, it's European hedonism and lacks morals. And uh, I found that yeah. so interesting because this is the transatlanticist podcast. So mm -hmm. what's with the European hedonism here? I have this theory, which is not in this book. I had a separate mm. manuscript that's going nowhere that looked at, looks at Jackie in terms of citizenship and particularly the widow's pension. So she was taxpayer funded. Hmm. and as first lady but then also as a widow i mean like it was not much and and she lost it when she remarried they acted like it was a ton of money it really wasn't but this idea of like we as citizens are entitled to this story and there's some stuff during the presidency during the jfk presidency where there's like this whole kerfuffle about how caroline was used in the press and i found in like i think it's in binghamton new york a bunch of letters to the editors where like the people signed their names aboard citizen and they were critiquing jackie's like letting her child be photographed which she usually if she wasn't a fan of that anyway uh and then someone would reply and they'd be another bored citizen and these letters to the editor hannah gadsby the comedian calls them um 
slow Twitter. And so you've got like people, it's like super <laughs> slow. It'd be like a matter of weeks, but they would be going back and forth. And you can see there this already this idea of like this, we are citizens and we do not approve of this. And I think that that does play a big, this idea of like, she's an American, she's ours. This is our story. President Kennedy's story is also our story. So we're doubly entitled to it as taxpayers and as people who voted for President Kennedy. I think that winds up playing a part in this, like, now she's in Europe and she's being wild and, you know, mm. really just doing things that were of the time. Like, other famous people were wearing hot pants and not wearing bras and going to all these places. So I think this is a unique situation as a first lady because we often do not have such a reported post first lady ishness, you know, the yeah. post first lady dumb that normally her celebrity, she was a celebrity before when she was a first lady, she went absolutely completely viral after and was just everywhere and completely exposed in a way that her story hadn't been actually before that. And mm -hmm. I think that's, what's so interesting here is that we have a very rare example of post first ladyhood that actually isn't someone going and doing volunteer work and doing documentaries and stuff like that. It's a very mm -hmm. early attempt to like have their build, build their own life after something deeply traumatic and after their first lady years. I mean, interestingly, she's also living a jet set life. Um, and that's very different. I'm, I'm interested in Michelle Obama, who's, mm -hmm. a, you know, social media activist and who's has a foundation and who's trying to uplift people. So it is a, a political agenda that she's pursuing mm -hmm. alongside her husband. I mean, they both are, and they also have a kind of highly mediated, highly covered post-presidency life. Mm -hmm. But this is so different because it's, it's kind of a private, it's a private jet set life that she's living. But And also she did do, I don't want to give her too much credit, <laughs> but yeah. also like she did do things often for, um, programs that were related to the to her husband or ex, uh, not her ex-husband, JFK or Robert Kennedy. Um, mm -hmm. the stuff she did with financing design works and helping them get a building and stuff and promoting that where like that she had her their designs covered in house beautiful in her own home yes. like the way she used her power to help that organization and the way she there was a a time where she was um working in a preschool in harlem and so she wanted to do things undercover and i think she and they talk about this a bit with going? the white house yeah, she couldn't, it would get exposed. And they talked about this a bit with the White House restoration was like, she didn't want to feel pushed to be more visible than she was. She wanted to do things. She wanted to be in control is basically yeah. how I read that. And certainly with her involvements later on, they weren't publicized and, and, and they kind of trickled out in the press a little bit, but usually way after the fact, except for the design works being the exception. She went to that exhibition and stayed longer than she was supposed to and had fun and stuff and got tons of glitzy coverage for them. Yeah. Very quickly, can you just tell us a little bit about Design Works? What is it? Is it still, are they still around? That's the other thing. I think that they I'm are. Curious. Yeah, I think they are. There was a New York Times profile of them a while ago. Um, so it was part of the Bedford-Stuyvesant community. It was like a community enterprise that Robert Kennedy helped start to have just to build, to support entrepreneurs in the community of Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York. And she knew the Tillets, who were a famous pair of textile designers. And they would, they were working in other countries and helping local artisans, like, sell their, their art elsewhere in the, in the U.S., mm -hmm. I think. I am not an expert on this. I should make, make sure to say that. But she was talking to them at some party or something and said, what, you know, could you do something here maybe? And so they started, they developed design works and they helped people in Bevis Stuyvesant uh, to start producing these African fabrics and textiles and things. And they were gorgeous. And this was like, I think mid, mid to late sixties, they started. Mm. And then she, they did a big exhibition at the, the Met, I think. Um, and she attended that along with several other people from the Kennedy family. Mm. But um, yeah, she was, and, so and I found some evidence in the archives of the JFK library. She helped pay their rent. Sometimes she helped them pr procure mm. space to do work in, but it was often like people in their homes doing these um, arts and crafts and then selling them. Yeah. A little, little, little bit like modern day Etsy. 
It sounds <laughs> That's like. really, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It does sound like that, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you. Because I was wondering about this. The other thing that mm-hmm. I was wondering about um, was when you go through the book, going through the book, you often have these wonderful um, pictures from newspaper articles, from magazine covers, you know, mm-hmm. television magazines and stuff like this. And often there's a weird coincidence between Jackie and Elizabeth Taylor. There's, I mean, Taylor is like the ghost written into this. When I read it, I'm like, there's Taylor again. She, there she is again. I'm like, okay, what's going on there? So, uh, um, well, yeah, what's going on there <laughs> with Taylor? It, yeah, it went on for a very long time. I can tell you yeah. that. Um, I think, and I, I don't even, I think there are a number of like direct parallel covers where they're together. But yes, absolutely. That This was a huge thing at the time. And I think while Jackie was first lady, it was that Jackie was a paragon of white womanhood and was perfection. Liz, this was, you know, 62, 63 during Cleopatra. She and Burton were, um, their affair had already been made public. And mm. so Liz was fallen womanhood and decadent. Oh womanhood. my God, that's make for such a nice panoply of I you know, know here you have the goddess and here you have the fallen woman wow mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. exactly and the, and also the voluptuous woman versus the the thinner yeah. woman and so um yeah it went on for ages and ages and there would be times where like Bert, they'd have like superimposed burton and liz and jackie all sitting in the back of a cab on a cover in the 70s there's a time where liz and ari i think actually do go to a bar and they get caught and that becomes a big tabloid thing but yeah, they were very often pitted against each other in the press huh. until the remarriage. And then it was like they were best friends because they were both fallen women. And so it was fine now. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but I think, I think okay. Elizabeth Should, Taylor. Did just have, you know, carried on with Ari without a marriage? I, I mean, know. Um, I don't think she ever would have done that, honestly, at that point in her huh. life. I think she wanted yeah. the security. I think she was in love with him. And yeah. And I think at that time, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, subsequently, yeah. subsequently, she did live with someone for a very long period of time, and he was her partner, and they never got married. But I think at this time in the in the late in 1968, I don't. Think, it was already the Kennedys were already like, you can't do this. <laughs> you cannot mm-hmm. marry this person while Bobby is running for the presidency. And so I think um, at that time it wasn't an option, but wow. certainly later it became one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, there's also an iconic. Um, iconic resemblance maybe between the two um and the, the the pictures that i have in mind the photos that i have in mind often show them very not so smiley i mean both of them are like diva-esque or you know have a statuesque quality mm-hmm. to them that you That's... know maybe works better with with jackie and and liz taylor than maybe let's let's say with jackie and uh i don't know obviously marilyn monroe or somebody else it seems that there's a as a statuesque quality, but that's just me going out on a limb here. Yeah, but, but also, um, <laughs> I've not, I've not thought of this before. But when you think of the Andy Warhol portraits of both of them, not the, not the Jackie at the funeral, but the iconic red Jackie, um, and his big Liz pictures, they do, they actually do look quite similar in those where they're, you know, not smiling, they're just kind of serious and, yeah, or not even serious, yeah. but kind of like wistful and knowing glaring yeah. into the distance mm-hmm. and this i mean this is a nice segue for talking about the cover of your book for the listeners who haven't mm-hmm. seen it it's a um offset color it's i think it's, it looks like a print or a digital um design and we see jackie with big glasses with a pink shirt and she's recognizable right away and then there's this nice her dark her the dark sunglasses her eyes are just just barely visible so so you know did you have an influence on this cover this is a suggestive question or I you know, why why this kind of cover yeah i very much wanted usually they're like black and white covers mm. it's a picture of someone looking younger this is usually the way biography is done and i really really wanted it to be something colorful i wanted it to be um, I was hopeful it could be done by a younger creative. And so this, this illustration is by Jovalee Burton, who is, I think, 22 or 23, lives in London. She's amazing. She's done a number of really just incredible She's book covers. And nice, we were yeah. lucky enough to get her. And the fact that you can see her eyes through the glasses is my favorite detail. So yeah, it was really, really special to get her. I do want to say and a I mean note to... on the, on the subtitle. Yes? Oh, oh, we could keep talking about the cover. No, no. By, there's a, uh, yes. The subtitle, A Life Reinvented. 
Uh-huh. Um, so I always wanted this book to be called An Alarming Life, which is something that someone said about her at a dinner party, and I'm never sure who my my former agent told me that her boss had heard that someone had said like Gore Vidal or um someone else, someone else famous had said this about her at a dinner party, that that woman has had an alarming life. And that's what I wanted it to be. But that didn't work out because the sales team was very alarmed by the world word alarming. So we went up with Finding Jackie, which was the name of my blog for years and years. But A Life Reinvented, I think originally it was some very long subtitle about the second act of America's Most Beloved First Lady. And I was like, no. And then it was her life reinvented. Hmm. And that I fought because I was like, there's no way it would be his life reinvented if this were a man. It needs to be a life. It's non-gender, just a life reinvented. Um, so that was one of my big battles. I felt like <laughs> that mm-hmm. and getting the, the thing on the label on the back changed from women to like famous people <laughs> or something like that too. There mm-hmm. were several places where it was sort of in the gender ghetto and I felt like it was quite important to not, not, Builds a history of that. Yes, it says biography and autobiography famous. Mm-hmm. It was women. Yes, it was originally nice. women. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Chuckle, chuckle. Chuckle, chuckle. <laughs> Can we go beyond the women famous thing and have something else? What, what, I, what I liked, the colors are wonderful. And um, of course, on the one hand, they, they, they reminded me of the Capri, you know, Mm-hmm. Jet Set Life. So this is a very summery, breezy book um, that I spoke to me mm-hmm. um, as a recreational read. But also, it reminded me of something that you said earlier, um, and that you know I was going to ask you about. You said that it's it's a Jackie moment right now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. why? Obviously, your book is um, a wonderful contribution to this right now and uh, to me it's certainly eye-opening but what what's your diagnosis for Jackie now why now I well so much of this is about anniversaries I think um Hmm. when they set the pub date for January 2023 my agent was like what's going on I was like I have no idea there's like literally nothing there's so many Kennedy anniversaries and that's just nothing that's fine Hmm. but now there um Carl Sparaza Anthony is the first ladies historian his book called Camera Girl which is about Jackie's time as a reporter at the Times Herald in DC in the early 50s this is how she met Jay well around the time she met JFK. Uh, that just came out last month. I think um, J. Randy Tarabarelli has a big Jackie, the definitive life story. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I frown at anyone claiming to be definitive because that just doesn't seem <laughs> realistic when there are a million books. Um, but that's coming out, I think, in July. So her birthday, her like 94th birthday would have been in July. The... 55th anniversary of her marriage to Onassis is going to be in November and then, or in in October, sorry. And then the 60th anniversary of the assassination is November. So I think it's one of those calendar years where there's a lot of big events. The 55th anniversary of Robert Kennedy's assassination was in, was just this past week. Mm. Um, So I think it's kind of that publishing tends to keep an eye on those things. So I think that's probably, or else we just all finished our books around the same time. I don't know. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense to me, I guess. Yeah. Um, also, because I think there's a bit of a nostalgia for the 60s going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, specifically, yeah. maybe with the Obama White House and, you know. And um, the 70s the, as well, I think, because there have been yeah. a number of Richard Nixon. Um, there was like the Martha Mitchell movie or uh, docuseries that came out a couple like last year. There's White mm-hmm. House Plumbers right now on HBO. There's been a number of like revisiting the Nixon. I think mm-hmm. last year was the 40th anniversary of Watergate or something. So it's been a lot of 70s nostalgia, yeah. too. So commemoration is one thing, but then again, this re-engagement with the celebrity and uh, the the more than just, it's not capital H history as yeah. we know it. I think this is a good moment for yeah. recapturing this and, uh, and reconsidering how we engage with this. I mean, the, the how I came to look at Jackie in the last couple of years was this Pablo Lorenz film and then um, mm-hmm. on... Uh, Netflix, um, Netflix's The Crown, the Crown has an mm-hmm. episode which pits Jackie against Elizabeth the first, uh, the second, yeah, the second, <laughs> <laughs> maybe the first by implication. I don't know, but I would um, absolutely watch that. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, maybe we are talking, uh, revisiting mm-hmm. or, or reconsidering or reinventing what we understand as capital H history at this point and saying, okay, how did mm-hmm. fe- people feel like? What newspapers did they look at? 
um, having a Jackie story next to the yeah. nuclear bomb story or something else. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting. A... I think there is a bit of a Kennedy industrial complex. So the other mm-hmm. writers who have books coming out have already written about the Kennedys before. There tends to be a a series of books written by the same people. Um, there, are, I think I'm the first, possibly the first millennial to write about her. There's no one yeah, from Gen Z. Yeah. So most of the people who have written about her in the past are people who were alive. And I think that's partly why there hasn't been this excavation of kind of just what the fuck was going on here. Uh, because people knew they were there. They didn't need to, they didn't, weren't curious about that because they just understood the alchemy that occurred or, or yeah. were at least immersed in it enough that they didn't question it. And so I think as we get further away from the lived experience of, of certain first ladies and stuff, that that does open up interesting lines of questioning from people who are exposed to these stories at these anniversary, at these important inflection points or through movies or whatever, but who don't have that background of having been there and having known what it was like or um for example the crown and princess diana's death and that hits people differently when they remember that out that outpouring of grief as opposed to people who you know were born in 2000 and have no idea i watch an episode of the crown and are like oh interesting (laughs) (laughs) yes and also i think it's not just it's good entertainment I think mm-hmm. that it, it sells, you know, in a way yeah, that yeah. doesn't touch you because you weren't born or you weren't around or you weren't mm-hmm. immediately present eyewitnessing yeah. things. Yeah. Um, but also, I think the I've done some work on the anniversaries as inflection points where the story gets retold from the present. So you see this in the book a little bit with the the 10th anniversary of the JFK murder um, at the time of Watergate and how everybody's yeah. always, everybody's like, oh, well, JFK wouldn't have done this. Little did they know. But there's this, sort of like this it's a it's a nostalgia so when the i think the 20th anniversary of princess diana's death was during brexit and i was in the uk Hmm. at the time and there was a lot of like viewing her life through brexit it's this strange yeah it's this strange thing weird it's really really odd but it's like here we are in this current moment we're going to look back on the past very very rooted in this current moment Hmm. and then that's the storytelling that gets picked up. So those things don't, they kind of become detached for the moment in which they're told, um, which I think is a serious problem of nonfiction. And then they kind of go on and become, this is, this is the way we look at this life now, or this is what this meant when actually it's what it meant in 2017 or what it means Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. It changes. It changes with every year, with every generation, with every anniversary, with every individual. Mm -hmm. That's such a wonderful closing statement. Oh, mine, I think. (laughs) No, I think I think that the changing and the Mirage character is mm-hmm. so written all over your book. And I want to mm-hmm. take the opportunity again to say to all our listeners here, I usually don't advertise so much, but this is advertisement <laughs> 101 from me to you. Buy the book, read it. It's really, really great. It came out earlier this year, 2023, with Diversion Books, Finding Jackie, A Life Reinvented by Oline Eaton. Thank you for being my guest. Thank this is a wonderful um, episode for me, and I hope we do keep up the conversation. I hope our yes. listeners enjoyed it as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.